Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of Make Ours Marvel. This is episode 48 of the show, which feels like a really big, important number. And I don't really know why, because there's nothing special about 48. But yay, 48 episodes. It's it's two episodes away from 50. That's what's special about it. It is. And it's four episodes away from 52, which marks a year. Oh, but that's DC, so... Let's not bring that up. (laughs) We are here to continue our journey through the early months of 1964. Uh, We started 1964 last episode with Journey into Mystery 103. And we are continuing the first week of 1964. uh, I'm sorry, the first week of February with February 4th, starting with Daredevil. A brand new character for the show, kids. Daredevil number one. yeah, our patience is paying off. We got we got some off. new blood flowing into the system. Uh, Daredevil number one, and I think it's me who gets to summarize this wonderful uh, little gem. You can probably do it without even looking. Well, what's funny is I've never read this before, in all honesty. Um, but then after I read it, I was like, oh, well, I guess I have read it before, kind of, because it felt like I had completely read it before. But uh yeah, let's do it. So, Daredevil number one, cover dated April of 1964, on sale, like he just said, John, that is, February 4th, 1964. It's called The Origin of Daredevil. And, whoops, we got to, oh, I don't think it has any clever uh, uh, credits. It's just written by Stan Lee, illustrated by Bill Everett, and lettered by Sam Rosen. But the cover is just, I don't think I'm going to read all of this, but they are really plugging away at uh, uh, the stuff that, that's already popular. So, essentially, it's like, you know, if you like Spider-Man and you like Fantastic Four, you're going to love Daredevil and all the cast that we already have figured out for him because we're a Marvel machine now and we've got this working. Right. Um, did I say it's called The Origin of Daredevil? Yes, I did. Okay. Origin of Daredevil starts out with these thugs. Like, you know they're thugs because they all have, like, cauliflower ears, like every single one of them, I think. Um, and they're gambling. And one of them says something like, hey, any minute now, the fixer is going to call us to, like, go beat up people or something. So we better be ready. And they're all kind of bored and stuff. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this yellow and brown and red, I guess, kind of cladded figure appears. And they're like... Who are you, you Looney Tune? And he said, no, I'm owned by Disney now. And he attacks them. Or is he owned by Sony? Anyway, uh, he attacks them and easily beats them up, even though they all thought that they could take him. But no, he beats up the whole room. And they're all like, who is this guy? And as if to answer, the story flashes back. I wish I knew how to do that Wayne's World. thing. Yep. Flashes back to uh, young little Matt Murdock whose dad is Jack Murdoch, who's kind of a uh, aging, um, what do you call him, boxer guy? Not kind of, literally is that. Anyway, Matt's mom died at a young age, wink, wink, and uh, he doesn't doesn't want his son to become the next Jack Murdoch. So he wants him to edumacate himself and hit the books and don't go out for sports and don't play outside with the kids, you know, roughhousing in the alleyway in New York City. No, you're going to be a book smarts guy, which Matt doesn't really like, but he honors his dad's wishes and he does put his nose to the grindstone in that department. But secretly behind his back, he also uses his dad's uh, training stuff like his weights and jump rope and, you know, punching bag to like just keep himself fit and give his body some, uh, you know, exercise, I guess. Um, anyway, meanwhile, 
Jack is not getting any younger and he's wondering how he's going to like, you know, support his son when that's all he knows how to do is fight. When he gets signed up with the fixer and the fixer promises, you know, it's always going to be clean fights. No worries. I'm going to get you going. And he's not wrong or he didn't lie sort of because he didn't tell Jack to, uh, uh, throw any fights, but he's having everybody else throw fights unbeknownst to Jack to sort of build Jack's like career up and get the uh, betting on his side, I guess. Anyway, back to old Maddie, who's uh, walking around one fateful day and he sees an old man crossing the street and he's about to get run over by this truck that's uh, kind of out of control and it has a, the word danger on it. And so he leaps into action because he's been keeping himself in shape and he knocks the guy out of the way. But unfortunately, a canister of some kind rolls out of the truck labeled danger and hits his eyeballs and he goes blind. Uh, but not to worry because he actually finds out this is a good thing for him because the rest of his senses get augmented and he finds that he can train even better now and he can do backflips and all kinds of crazy stuff. So he's not too upset about it. He goes to college. He meets Foggy Nelson, his good friend. Um, and then Foggy gets tickets to a fight that his dad's going to be in. He's going to fight like some big number two contender or number one contender or something like that. And this is where the fixer's evil plan finally comes into action. Because now he asks Jack or tells Jack to take a dive. Because everybody's voting on Jack. So the odds are like in the fixer's favor to vote to uh, bet on the other guy. Um, but Jack knows that Matt's in the audience and he has too much pride and he wants his son to be proud of him. So he goes ahead and just wallops the dude um, and he wins and tells himself, no matter what, at least Jack or at least Matt got to see me win a fight. And then like, that's the last thoughts in his head because the fixer has him moited. Um, so that makes Matt sad, but to honor his father, he graduates college anyway and then with the help of Foggy's dad's money, the two of them open Nelson and Murdoch, attorneys at law, at large, attorneys at law, sometimes at large. Well, Foggy um, does gain weight after a while. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure they both went on the wrong side of the law at some point in their career. But anyway. Not Matt. Uh, surely not. Surely not Matt, as he, by the way, goes on the wrong side of law right now because he decides even though he has a good job and he graduated college and everything's cool, he just can't. Get over this whole someone killed my dad thing. So what can I do about it? I know I can use my awesome senses and all that training I've been doing. And I could just take care of business while no one's looking. So uh, speaking of not looking, he blindly like cobbles together a suit. He decides to call himself Daredevil because that's what all the kids used to call him when he wouldn't like play with them and stuff because his dad wouldn't let him. Because those kids have, like, no imagination when it comes to name-calling, I guess. And anyway, it cuts back to the present where he just wiped the floor with uh, Fixer's guys. The Fixer and some other dude whose name escapes me shows up. Um, and he's like, cool, that's who I really wanted to see. So he starts beating on those guys. Um, the dude whose name escapes me, who's dressed, like, all in black. It turns out he's the one who actually did the hit, the killing. And he tells Daredevil that as a distraction and then pushes him out the window seemingly to his death. Luckily it's the Marvel universe and there's flagpoles aplenty because daredevil just hooks his cane baton billy club thing onto a flagpole swings back up inside and knocks that dude over. Uh, he and the fixer then proceed to run away 
And Matt, because he has super senses, doesn't really need to chase after him in his suit. So he just turns to Matt Murdock again and kind of casually walks through the city chasing after the uh, fixer's cigar with his super senses. And then when he catches up with them in the subway, he turns back to Daredevil, much to their shock, and starts fighting them again. Uh, The one guy he easily takes out and then he scares the fixer to death by – rolling on a garbage can like a lumberjack and that causes the fixer to have a heart attack but not before they both kind of out loud admit what they've done uh, in earshot of a couple cops so daredevil says you heard him and then jumps onto the uh, subway train and and gets away goes back to his office where foggy and their new hire, Karen Page, Secretary Karen Page, are kind of worried about Matt because they haven't seen him and he's blind and it's a big city and oh my gosh, he's helpless. And Karen Page is taking a book out of uh, Jane Foster where she's kind of in love with him, but it's too bad he's a big honking cripple. Um, but they're happy because he makes it home and, you know, the end. Right. Oh, so, like his, he's like, now dad can rest easy knowing I beat those guys up. Yeah. Yeah. Which was his entire reason for becoming Daredevil. Yes. So that's done. It's a good book. Yeah, it's over. Daredevil number one, one shot. I love these one shots. Mm-hmm. So you'd never read this before. I've never read any quote unquote yellow Daredevil until like, unless it's like a modern retelling or flashback or something. Okay. But you so. feel like you had read the story or heard the story enough before. <sighs> oh my God. It's just like, uh, exactly like I thought it would be pretty much. Mm-hmm. No new revelations. I mean, it's missing some components that they're going to add to later, but right, right. Uh, the bare bones is there. Yeah, it is. Um, there's some continuity stuff that gets played with later. Definitely things get added into the timeline later. Um, but this is basically the story that has been told. And as of late, you know, retold with the Netflix series and everything else. It's kind of crazy that we live in a world where people know daredevil's origin story i know a random kid can know what daredevil is and where he's from it's amazing but it's also weird because it is because he's another b-list character right in fact in fact outside of like hulk and spider-man all these guys are b-list characters and everybody knows who everybody is now did you notice that the cover image and the splash page image were the same yeah that's taken right out of uh the bob kane uh how to do comics so approach. I wondered if maybe the cover image, if the splash page image was the cover and it was not enough. So they just took their Daredevil thing, statted it over and added more to the cover. Either that or there was no cover and they just cobbled it together. But yeah, I, I think you're probably right the other way because the cover at least has goons and stuff underneath him. Mm-hmm. But then it's also got like heads of the Fantastic Four, which you could have cut from anywhere or you know, a shot of Spider-Man that anybody could have drawn, maybe. Right, right. In fact, those pictures of Fantastic Four might be the exact same pictures from their corner box. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Could very well be. Let's see. That is exactly where they're from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, now that so Spider-Man maybe, is not a Ditko Spider-Man. It's uh, the webs are a bit wrong. Um, I don't know if his, it's an Everett Spider-Man either, though, because I've never seen him draw Spider-Man yet. Yeah, I don't know. But, but we will, I think. Um, I really liked the, the flavor and tone of the art in this with his faces and the, the really moody inking and such. Yeah. I mean, the only other Everett we've covered is Submariner number one. Yeah. So that was bad. 
<laughs> I thought. Because I know I've seen other Bill Everett art before, and I thought I've always thought of him as a good, you know, Golden Age artist, Silver uh-huh. Age artist. But that first Submariner was horribly disappointing. So it was neat to see that he uh, got over that, I guess. Yeah, he had some things working against him there. He was doing, you know, fish people. Mm-hmm. And he tried that effect with the water that just was not very effective. Right. Uh, and they would they would give that up almost immediately. Yeah, this reminds me of like kind of EC. Is mm-hmm. that the is that the company that did like horror comics and yeah, crime and horror comics? Yep. Yeah, it has that flavor to it, kind of. So yeah, Bill Everett is one of the the Golden Age greats. Now, if I remember my lore correctly, this is well after his you know the height of his career. Uh, bringing him onto this book was an effort by Stan Lee to give him some work. Oh. Because he was having trouble staying employed due to drinking problems. Oh, well, that I, was nice of Stan. I could be wrong about that. It doesn't last long. Um, and I think he goes away again until I think he does some of the actual Submariner series when it gets to us with Astonish, but not very much of that either. So is he credited as co-creator, though, or is he just brought on after they already had made this I idea? I have not looked up the uh, the creation credits on Daredevil. Well, according to Wiki, it's created by Stanley and Bill Everett. But is that just someone being lazy and slapping the two first creators on there? Or I don't know. The best thing about Wikipedia is it's editable, so anyone who right thinks that they're wrong can can fix it. And I couldn't really find. I tried to find. Anytime we have a new character, I try to find like a little info on maybe like who had what idea and how and why it came into being. But I found nothing for Daredevil, which was kind of weird. I thought there'd be more, mm-hmm. uh, and there wasn't anything. So. I'd be interested to know, like, did Stan just go, hey, you need a job, create a character, I'll give you a number one? Or was it like, we have this guy Daredevil already going, do you want to draw it, or what? Well, the Encyclopedia Britannica also has Stan Lee and Bill Everett credited as the creators of Daredevil. Now, Wikipedia and the general published encyclopedia have about the same level of reliability. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. um all right. So getting into the story, um, like you said, this origin is very well known at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked the face of young Matt. I thought it aged well and I thought, you know, he was he was a neat looking kid. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing that's always bothered me about this origin is the kids calling him Daredevil. Yes, it's a very flimsy excuse. It just feels a- contrived and forced. It always has, and now you kind of are stuck with it, so you have to use it. And I don't fault creators when they reference it, but yeah, it's like good thing they didn't call him like Sissy Man or something, because then this would be here comes Sissy Man, the man without fear, number one, right? <laughs> um, it's just it, it, it's, it's a it's weird not a nickname. Name you call people? No, it's not. Not if you're trying to make them mad. Certainly, no. Unless it's like supposed to be like ironic or sarcastic. Oh, he won't do anything. He's such a daredevil. But I, I never felt like it was written that way. And even if it was, you still, I still don't see little, you know, alleyway kids from New York doing that. It doesn't right. seem hard enough. I don't know. It's, it's not Brooklyn enough. I guess they needed some reason for him to call himself that, but I feel like they came up with the name first and then came up with the reason later. There's a neat panel of him training on page seven, and I felt like I've seen either Golden Age Bruce or Golden Age Dick going through similar art. Like that, the show of him doing the barbells with with his bare chest. I feel like I've seen Dick in that same pose. Well, so you brought up Batman, or maybe I already have at some point tonight. But uh, so, what do you think of the idea 
since we're talking about his origin. What do you think of the idea of Daredevil being, quote unquote, you know, Marvel's Batman? Um, <laughs> okay. Usually whenever somebody says this is Marvel's Batman or this is DC's whatever, it's like they're trying to create a character that fulfills the same purpose. Uh-huh. I don't see that. Okay. I do see that Daredevil has bat powers. Hey, wow. I never even thought of that part. Daredevil is Batman. More if than you, Batman. Yeah, yeah. He's blind. He, yeah. um, He's got sonar. Right. He has the sonar powers. I don't, it's just like if you're going to say Batman and you it, like you would think Daredevil. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't know. How, how do you feel about it? Do you think that Daredevil is kind of Batman-ish? Well, I mean, they're both ultimately dark characters. Not here right now. Mm-hmm. obviously, but we know he becomes that. And they're both characters who have a fan base that oftentimes really loves Frank Miller and his influence on those characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, they're connected. Uh, Daredevil is also a vigilante and doesn't have superpowers. Although of course he does with his senses, but not like he can't lift cars over his head or anything like that. Right. He's not bulletproof. Uh, he has abilities. He's not super. They both have these training montages where they're lifting barbells and jumping rope and stuff. Um, I would say, though, I've always thought like Matt Murdock would hate Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne would hate Matt Murdock uh, because Matt loves to live in chaos and hook up with chaotic people who ruin his life and make chaotic choices that burn his life to the ground again and again so he can build himself back up again. And Bruce is far more like super controlly crazy guy. So I don't know. To me, like, Marvel's Batman is probably Tony Stark more than anything because <laughs> they're both rich and they both probably have books that that have secret ideas of how to beat up their friends if they have to because they're futurists and stuff. Especially uh, MCU, Tony feels a lot like that. Yeah. I mean, the way they're both written right now, I would say they're far more alike. I don't know. I think it's just too easy because it's like, yeah. Um, I think the Frank Miller connection is the most obvious thing. They've both been painted with that brush. Mm-hmm. And that colored the character so heavily for decades after his, you know, yeah. after Frank Miller stopped. Now, I think that Daredevil has had more success just in the last 10 years, but has had more success of getting out from under that shadow mm-hmm. than Batman has. I feel like the Batman we have now, in a lot of ways, is still just another take on Frank Miller's Batman. Yeah. I also like how Daredevil, just if we're comparing and contrasting i like how daredevil kind of remains a street hero um more than batman mr you know co-founder of the justice league mm-hmm. always always fighting space things and all that like like daredevil seems to have his little burrow that he cares about hell's kitchen which they don't mention in this issue at all i don't think or no. do they okay I don't, even, I don't even know when that comes up because it's not anywhere in the early stuff but it's like he doesn't even take on the entire city he's just got his little seven eight blocks whatever they are that's my thing. Those are my people. I don't deal with Cree scroll war problems. That's that's above my pay grade to like paraphrase Tony Stark, right? Yeah, you're right. So, Daredevil always gets left out of those big crossovers, whereas pretty Batman much. being part of the Justice League is always right there, you know, five mm-hmm. miles behind Superman. Yeah. I like that like there's tiers of characters in the Marvel universe. Like to me, Spider Man and Daredevil are much better when they're just sort of street heroes. Obviously Spider Man takes on more than Daredevil, but but I don't. But he's, you know, he's never comfortable in that environment. He. Yeah, I he mean, can, like Hob, Hobgoblin does more damage than you know. I don't know the owl or something. But 
But uh, he, I don't, I don't, I guess Spider-Man now joins the Avengers all the time, but I liked it better when he's just kind of a street guy like Daredevil and they've got their own people. Punisher, Daredevil, Spider-Man. I can't think of any others. Moon That's Knight. Kind of that, uh, yeah, Moon Knight. But Daredevil, Punisher, Spider-Man is kind of your street trio in Marvel. Right. So I think that's cool. He doesn't have baggage. He's never. He's not a founder of the Avengers. He doesn't have to be there like at press night or you know when they're going off into space or whatever. Um, okay. So in page seven, mm-hmm. um, at the bottom, the the fixer sets up a thing with Jack Murdoch, and right. Jack takes that fight knowing what the fixer is, knowing what's going to happen at some point down the road. Yeah. He but. Like you said, he's kind of a has-been. He's kind of washed up. The only thing he knows is fighting, and now he can't get fights. And so I don't feel like he has a whole lot of choice. Well, and he – I mean, the fixer outright says you won't have to take dives either. Yeah. Which, which we know he's a liar, and Jack, if he was smart, probably knows he's a liar too. But at the same time, yeah, you're right. I mean, he's desperate, and no one else is signing him, and he doesn't know how to do anything else. So Right. Do you feel like Matt has his whole accident things because he's just too good like, I really feel like Matt was sainting it up a bit in this comic. I was wondering if they ever get into who this old man is, because I've never thought about that before until I read this issue. He has oh. no line. He has no lines. I've never read a single story where he comes to the hospital later and goes, thanks for saving my life or anything like that. He's also blind or yeah. seemingly blind. I don't know. Is he a character ever? Is he stick? Is he... I don't think he's supposed to be stick, but boy, he could be, I guess, like stick in disguise or something. Yeah. But like same with like or Spider-Man's uh, killer or Uncle Ben's killer. I guess you told me that he never even has a name. And I, I was kind of just shocked by that, that they never explore that at all. Yeah. His his first name is The. His last name is Burglar. <laughs> the Burglar. This guy is the old man crossing the street. Right, right. Um it's a good point. It's just that he's like he's smiling in almost every single picture of his origin. It's even whenever he's blind and like trying to get their life. He's still smiling. He's he's so happy. Oh. He he does all of his homework because, you know, dad wants him to do that and your your dead mom wants you to do that and he goes to school and he becomes a lawyer and does everything he's supposed to do. And even, you know, getting the guy on the road is just, "Oh, I see an old man. There's a truck coming. I got to help him." He's just there's no flaw to this guy's character. Yeah, you're right. Like, there was no uh, problems with him becoming blind. Right. Um, which, of course, will be retconned later. Yes, yes. As, as, this, as this whole phase of life is expanded and made more emotionally complex. Yes. Like, he doesn't – he just, like, graduates. He's still smiling. Actually, let me re- – yeah, he smiles in every panel after his dad's death, too, except one where he's, like, crying on his bed. But after that, smiling when he's graduating, smiling when – he and Foggy open a, a law office, smiling when he meets Karen Page, of course. Even smiling when he thinks about how he can get vengeance for his dad. He's like happy about it. Ah, I have it. Snap. I'll create a fancy outfit. Smile, smile, smile. So, yeah, he really uh, starts out a much happier character than he ends up. Now, we can't talk about the origin of Daredevil without talking about what else is going on in the scene. Okay. Because the radioactive materials truck hits um, Matt. Uh-huh. A cylinder falls from the truck and strikes, strikes his face. It's something radioactive. Yeah. They don't talk about it, but then another cylinder falls off the truck, bounces down the street, and smashes right into a glass bowl that a boy is holding with four turtles inside. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, of course, those turtles fall into the sewer and get covered in this radioactive mess 
Um, and a rat who tries to help them also gets in the mess and they all grow into human sized mutated creatures. And they've never crossed over or have I, they? I don't, I don't even so. know if they have. I know Batman and the turtles have crossed over, but yeah. But if, if you're unaware, the Ninja Turtles origin is very directly linked to this story. And, um, there were some very, you know, intentional things that you, you, you probably know, but if you don't, you know, you had stick training daredevil, you have splinter training the turtles, you have the, the hand being the evil ninjas in daredevil, the foot are the evil ninjas in the turtles. Um, so yeah, that first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1984 is a deliberate pastiche on Frank Miller's Daredevil. Yes. So that's pretty great. It is pretty great. Um, I did some history research on Braille. Okay. Because, you know, why not? Um, he's, he's only able to go to school because all of his textbooks are in Braille. Uh-huh. And Braille as a language goes back to, or as a, as a, as a printing method goes back to 19th century France, but like the printing and production of Braille had taken a real big turn in the 1950s and they made a translation software in 1960, which made it a lot easier to convert already established texts into Braille. I didn't know they had <laughs> software in 1960. Right. Wow. Yeah, they um they they came up with a way to program text into a machine that would then just translate it into braille automatically. You didn't have to manually come up with the braille printing. Uh, a lot of that was automated if you just give it the text. So uh, after 1960, braille editions of books became a lot easier to print. Of course, Matt doesn't even need braille, so that's just his cover because he can he can <laughs> he right. can just touch ink and feel the the indent of the anchor, the typeset and somehow read that way. Which You're is pretty so cool. right. Like, like he spends his entire life reading Braille whenever he doesn't have to at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I imagine it's easier still because it's purposely sticking out and, you know, he can read it with his fingers versus You're having to. You're probably right. I don't know. And I've heard that the whole reason Braille exists is because it's actually really difficult to decipher characters, um, you know, in raised ink or whatever. Oh, that's one yeah. of the reasons that Braille exists. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Why not just make the K pop out higher and then you can figure out it's a K. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So they talk about his powers. They talk about how they work. And if you don't get it and you don't understand, that's okay. Because they're going to reiterate how his powers work about 25 more times. And change and, it. and Well, no, yeah. like in this issue and the next like two or three issues. Oh. oh, my gosh. His powers are so heavily narrated and expounded. And and. <laughs> Every time he does something, it's like, and this is how Daredevil works. It's kind of cool, though. I've always thought, I mean, I, God, that's why I wish I could figure out, like, what was the what was the thought process behind making a blind hero in the first place, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I do love his powers and sometimes the creative way they come up with, you know, how he functions and stuff. In this particular issue, I didn't find... It's super creative. It was all like, oh, I could just hear that guy and there's no footsteps between us so I can throw my baton kind of thing. But um, eventually it's going to get kind of creative stuff. Well, okay. So there's another Daredevil. There's, there's an, an earlier Daredevil. Oh, yeah. Golden Age Daredevil. Golden Age Daredevil. Yes. Now, I didn't I – didn't, I've never read Golden Age Daredevil but um, – I, and I didn't know this. But somebody just recently said that that Daredevil was deaf. <gasps> really? Yeah. Interesting. See, that's the thing. Like, if I was Stan and he's like, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to 
make a superhero that has a disability and that way kids that are disabled will latch on to him. Maybe not pick blindness because those guys aren't reading comics, you know? Now I'm on Daredevil's Wikipedia page and I see nothing. There's no, the word deaf does not even exist on the page. So that could be somebody's misinformation. Um, Probably because you'd think they'd mention that if that was the thing. Yeah, but that was created by Jack Bender and um, for Lev Gleason publications back in 1940. Um, yeah, it is weird to have, make him blind, but then basically give him second, uh, you know, secondary abilities that help him to see. So the blindness becomes more of a gimmick to actually becomes more of a gimmick to his personal life than to his actual superheroing. I mean, it's a drawback sometimes. Obviously, all these super senses are great in a lot of ways. Like, no one can sneak up behind him or anything like that. But there are times where it's like he can't see what color something is. Right. He can't see color. He can't read by looking. He has to touch the paper. So whenever there's paper in front of him, it's just a paper. Like um, when he fights somebody and then they later ask, well, what kind of logo was on his costume that he doesn't know? You know? Right. So things like that. But there's a lot of the stuff that he's able to hear and able to tell that just has never really quite worked for me. You just have to, to kind of accept it. And I'm not going to like, you know, call this out every time it happens, but just to give an example of what I mean, um, on page 11, when it's uh, finishing up his, um, you know, he just got his powers and he's, he's in college down at the bottom. He says, a few days before battling Murdoch's latest fight, Matt Murdoch hears footsteps. I can tell by the weight and the distance between them, it's Foggy Nelson. Now, I've never been blind, and I would hate to presume incorrectly, but it seems to me that this is probably more a logical conclusion of probability. Like, oh, those sound like heavy footsteps. I wonder if that's Foggy. It lets me listen for his voice. Not actual certainty. Like, those are Foggy Nelson. Like, the whole, like, every heartbeat is a fingerprint. I don't buy it. I feel like, especially in this right now, they're being very little, literal and very simple, and I feel like eventually they establish this idea that all of these expanded sentences somehow just create like this fifth sense for him. Like he doesn't even necessarily register what specific input is coming in. So between smell and hearing him and I don't know what else, maybe the way his shoes squeak or something like that, that all just combines to foggy. Like he can just feel it that it's foggy or whatever. And that works for me. Like it's just, you know, cause you and I, even, even if we have our sight, we don't necessarily perceive every way that we notice something. Yeah. You know, it just kind of all comes into our head and, and works together. That's probably true. So like right, like on that same page, the first panel is like, I can walk around this room because, uh, what did he say? Like there's like little pinging noises or something. Or whenever I approach a solid object, I feel a strange, you know, sensation, tingling sensation. Now, I don't, I don't really take that literally. I just feel like because of all his advanced senses, he can figure out where the desk is. Yeah. Somehow. And the radar sense, you know... I- that works pretty well for me. Yeah. Um, but just some of the way he like so definitively defined, de- identifies people and, and tracks them so specifically. I've, I've always had a hard time with that. But it, it, it's one of those things that it, you kind of, whether you rationalize it or don't, you have to accept as part of the character because it's not going anywhere. That's right. So I'm not going to go about, you know, calling out, say, no, this doesn't work. This is done. No, no, that's, that's, that's not, that's not what party we're here for, kids. Yeah. Um, so I watched Daredevil season one and season two. As of this recording, I have not yet seen season three. Don't at me. But um, I haven't either. <laughs> I've seen half of it. I had forgotten how much they changed the timeline in the show. 
Because Jack lives to see his son get into law school and be extremely successful. It is, quote, shortly before graduation when Jack dies. Okay. And in the show, I mean, Matt's still a baby. I mean, he's like, he's like that same, you know, young age the whole time. So there's this pretty cool uh, Frank Miller, John Romita Jr. miniseries called Man Without Fear, where they redo his origin. Mm-hmm. And it's much, it's much this, except, of course, it adds the stick elements and it adds Electro in college and stuff like that. But the definite differences between that and this is that, yeah, Jack dies before before he even goes to college, I think. And then Matt, like, gets his revenge as a kid wearing just, like, a makeshift mask. Oh, um, because Stick has already been training him, so he knows how to beat people up. Um, so it wasn't that was interesting here. Like he he gets depressed, and he rightly so gets depressed, but he doesn't go right into the vengeance game. He goes all through, finishes college, opens up a attorneys at law, which is only two panels in this issue, but you got to imagine that takes years to do, right? Um, and then decides, you know, it's really bugging me that whole my dad being murdered thing. I'm going to become Batman. So, because bats have blindness powers. So there's a delay there, which most vengeance-seeking superheroes don't have. Okay, well, that is interesting. Yeah. So by moving it all kind of closer together makes it makes it work out better. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to note that Foggy invites Matt to join him as his partner. Uh-huh. That it's Foggy who initiates the relationship. Because I think later when their relationship turns more rocky, it's important to note who hired whom. And the order of the names Nelson and Murdoch ties into that. It's it's Foggy Nelson's law practice, and Matt Murdoch has been brought on as partner. Um, and, you know, and, Matt's go Matt's going to try to be very unreliable and such. Yeah, that actually rings true for the when we get a lot more character out of Matt in the future. You know, twenty years, thirty years from now, um, he's a very like antisocial guy normally. So it makes sense that Foggy would be the one demanding the friendship and demanding they go together. You know, demanding that Matt live. Right, and not not just be a secluded bookworm, which also fits the character in the sense of this issue, where his dad is like, "No, stay in your room and don't socialize with anybody." You know, like no wonder Matt came out kind of self-absorbed and and withdrawn, like he wasn't even allowed to go outside and play. Right, so, which is which is terrible because kids need to go play. Yeah, Matt's dad was not did not read that book, I guess. Um. Okay. So speaking of Matt and his dad. Talk about rationalizing. He makes the promise that he will never turn to violence like his dad. Uh-huh. He promises his dad this. Yeah. I'll see to it that Matt Murdock never does resort to force, but somebody else will. Oh, yeah, that's somebody right. totally different from Matt Murdock. Uh, All I need is a costume. I forgot he did that. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrible rationalization. Yes, like, it is. Oh, my gosh. Um yeah. Matt's a little crazy, maybe. <laughs> and he says, uh, he says, I can blend the colors for each colored fabric has a different feel to me. You, that is false. You might think so. And maybe that's why your costume looks so crazy at the beginning. Um, I actually really like the the yellow Daredevil costume. I know it's it's weird if you're used to seeing only the red costume. But as a 1960s superhero costume, I think the yellow is pretty great. I like it as a flashback costume. I like that he mm-hmm. had an original costume, and that gives you a time and place whenever you want to tell an early Daredevil story. Yeah. But but I'm also really glad that Wally Wood came along and said, um, his name's Daredevil. Can you 
We should make, make him, him look like a daredevil. Make him or red, make him maybe. Like <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I much prefer the modern costume, but but the uh, other is cool. And just for those who want to like tie everything to Captain America, um, he had a partner once named Demolition Man who totally rips off this costume and uses the big D for himself. Yeah, I've wondered if there's like actual story connection between the two. Because why does he have Daredevil's exact costume? Oh, he says uh, that looks familiar. Oh yeah, I was a big fan of uh, Daredevil growing. Hey, you too, of course, Cap. So he totally rips it off. Nice. And then puts Wolverine's face mask on. But hey, you know, you you dress up like your fan people, right? Yeah. That's why Ms. Marvel wore the lightning bolt on her suit. She really liked Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel. She calls herself Ms. Marvel because she liked Captain Marvel as Ms. Marvel. And she got her powers from him. Yeah. It's yeah. it all comes to So um Matt's first outing as Daredevil is the very next day after opening his law office. Yeah. Is is this his first Daredevil outing? I guess it must be, right? We have to assume that. Yeah, they open up, they get the secretary, hubba hubba. And uh-huh. I don't say that on my part, I say that on their part. And yeah. then that night he makes a costume and decides to go kill the fixer. Yeah. So this is his very first man, they this is like Marvel's first uh, we know how to make origins now uh, comic book, kind of. Yeah, this is like the second. I mean, we could say that Avengers and X-Men were also kind of a second wave, but it's actually been a few months since then where Daredevil is a bit separated from the rest of Marvel's lineup. I mean, Spider-Man, I guess, right out of the gate had a really strong origin. Mm hmm. Um, but his first appearance was like that little tiny story. So it didn't establish supporting characters or anything yet other than his aunt and uncle, of course. But, uh, it took a little while to get Betty and I guess J Jonah came out immediately, but I don't know what I'm talking about. I guess Daredevil's exactly like Flash or, or Daredevil's exactly like a Spider-Man, only a full-sized issue. Yeah. I just, is Daredevil the last new character? The last new character ever? Not ever, but like for a long, long time. Oh God, I don't know. I think he is. You and Jason Schnick can 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 tell me that because I don't look <laughs> ahead. You spoilers. I yeah, think. He might I be. mean, Captain America is going to get his solo series, and the Hulk's going to get a solo series, and Giant Man's going to get replaced by the Submariner solo series, and Nick Fury's going to become Agent of Shield. But those are all characters we already knew. Yeah, I think Daredevil is the last. Of the original Marvel lineup. So who would be like the next? Whoa. I had never thought of that. Who's the next person that's new that gets a title? That's a long ways away, I guess, huh? Yeah. um, I'm kind of flipping ahead, but oh, really? That far? Wow. I'm just guessing off the top of my head. I think maybe it's Captain Marvel. I've, I've clicked like from one month to the next on Mike's Amazing World of DC and Marvel. Um, and I'm in April 1965 and still nobody knew. Right. So, um, yeah. There's the Western Ghost Rider. Oh, well, we 19- don't count that. Yeah, and that's 1967. Oh, man. But, not, you know, by the end of 1967, that's Captain Marvel. He's the next new guy. Wow. Oh, my gosh. All right. So, Daredevil is the last new character in Marvel's, like, original, like, uh, you Silver know. Silver Age. Silver Age spring dawning of a new universe kind of thing. Wow. wow. I, I'd never thought about that before. And they get it like they get it right because they give him a really, you know, strong motivation and they give him supporting cast and they give him a job and they just have it all out here on this first issue. It's set up. Let's go. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They know how to do it now. They do know how to do it now. Um, also, just just throw it out there. Also, around the time that they're making Captain Marvel, there is another war series that starts up to go along with Sergeant Fury, and uh, that is Captain Savage and his Leatherneck Raiders. Oh, because so, that lasted. It didn't last a whole lot of time, but it is a, it is Marvel Universe. It has crossovers with Sergeant Fury as far as character usage goes. Um, but but yeah, wow, I wow, I'm kind of stymied by this, but we should keep going. Um, okay. I mean, other I don't know what else I have to say other than um, just a, f- a few minor things. I like that he was able to figure out that his powers could make him uh, a lie detector. I feel like that is one of the cooler applications of his powers because all those biometrics that lie detectors key in on, he can hear some of those. Was that in this issue? Yeah, it's on page 17. Wow, I never even noticed that. Awesome. Um, wow. He's talking to the fixer and, and the fixer's oh, guy. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, their, their uh, pulses pick up whenever they're talking about how they didn't have anything to do with uh, Ballad Murdoch's death. Mm. Uh, then page 18, Foggy goes to check on Matt. Funny, uh-huh. Matt doesn't answer. Maybe he's still asleep. Oh, the door's open. Hey, Lazy Bones, I thought I'd see if you need anything. And Matt, he's gone. Gosh, mm-hmm. I wish he'd called me. I hate to think of poor Matt walking around town all alone with all the traffic in New York. And I'm just like, okay, hey, Foggy, you know that? You know that feeling you have right now, that sort of mix of surprise and, and worry and maybe even a little bit of rejection? Get used to that feeling. <laughs> I was thinking, let's all get used to reading this whole business where Foggy and Karen worry about poor, poor, uh, you know, blind Matt, because I have a feeling every issue is going to involve this. Yeah, although Foggy starts getting mixed with resentment pretty early on. But uh, but yeah, definitely lots of worry about poor blind Matt. Which is weird because he grew up in New York and has been blind since before college. So it's like, I think he knows how to get around. Yeah, in New York City on his own. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got things covered. Uh, you mentioned Karen, though. Speaking of Karen, the next page, page 19, Foggy goes to the office and our caption says, Entering the new office, Foggy finds it unoccupied, except for the most decorative accessory. <laughs> Stan? I, no, I think they were talking about that picture on the wall. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Too bad the next word is Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. Yep. Uh, and then uh, the, the conversations these people have, like it's worse than it was with Don Blake. Um, Karen says, I understand. What a pity that such a wonderful, handsome man is so handicapped. Now it's like, yeah. Sure is a shame that a pretty person has a disability, right, kids? I mean, ugly people, you expect it, right? But not pretty people, right, kids? Either right? I took it more like it's too bad. I would date this guy except for the fact that he's blind. But either way, it's not good. No. And, uh, and she's not like that, though. Like, she, she's totally into him. She also says it out loud, which I think is bolder than Jane, who usually just thinks it. Yes. After uh, all, Karen, this is your second day working for these people. I'm pretty sure, Karen, today's your day off. What are you doing here is is a plot that happens in season one like 15 times. So it's kind of cool that they took it from the comics. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Actually, yeah. Actually, that – because she's just cleaning. She's just I like, like – there was this. I have nothing to do. I don't have any friends here because I was just convicted of murder and I need, right. to just, I need to stay busy. So I just came in and started picking up the place and that was exactly what happened in the comics. You're right. In the, in the show. Yeah. Um, page 20. Uh-huh. 
Matt Daredevil says, now for my final bluff. They're so worried now they'll believe anything. Um, right here, I have a miniature tape recorder concealed in my billy club. It'll tell the police all they need to know. And I know that he says he's bluffing, mm-hmm. but I would not put it past him to do exactly this in a later <laughs> issue. Yeah. To and conceal I, the recorder in his billy club. And I always wonder how much that would those sort of things would hold up in court. It seems like you can't just go around taping people, especially if you're a vigilante with no identity. Yeah, yeah I think some of those laws have changed since 1964. Yeah. Who gave you this tape? Oh, a uh, masked man whose identity I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. That's valid. Let's, let's go through with that. Right. I love all this business, though, of him uh, turning back to Matt and just casually following them as they run <laughs> for their lives. That's just so great. Casually following the rancid cigar. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't need to run through New York dressed in yellow and get mobbed and stuff. I'll just be a guy and just walk. Oh, when, when he changes back to Daredevil, look on page 21, that fourth panel. He is not in a discreet secluded corner. He's just <laughs> at a bench in the train station. The platform is just <laughs> over there and he's taking off his clothes. And why is that blind man taking off his clothes, mom? <laughs> and he I don't like, know, sweetie. That's he, he the last d- horror movie I take to you two, young man. He doesn't look very uh, super manly either. It's just <laughs> no, like no. taking my pants off one leg at a time. Derp, derp, derp. <laughs> um, and the last thing I had was page 22. He's already wrenched one of his arms in the fight. And he jumps up and grabs the subway train in motion. Mm. And I was like, that's a great way to wrench your other arm. Yeah, that should just kill him. But, you know, superheroes, I guess. I guess. And, of course, the conven- the convenience of the fixer dying. Uh, well, I don't know if it's convenient because it's not like the fixer knew his identity or anything. But I guess it's nice that he doesn't have to uh, defend him in court. Right. Oh, that's yeah. how this ended. I forgot. I messed up in the summary as uh, one of the other guys, the guy whose name I can't remember, asked Foggy or Nelson and Murdoch to defend him. And Foggy's like, well, he sounded guilty to me. So I said, no, I hope you're OK with that. And Matt's like, mind, that's awesome. Great decision making. But that got me thinking, like, I think in the movie, and I'm not sure about the TV show, but he's like a prosecutor, not a defender. Oh, in the TV show, he's a defender. Okay. Well, in the movie, the Ben Affleck movie that everybody wants to hate, uh, he's a prosecutor. I remember that. Um, I always wondered if that was a better choice because, I don't know, Daredevil, Vigilante, I'm going to get this guy. And then you have to, like, you're putting yourself in the position to, like, defend him after? Right. It is It is a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're correct. And the other person's name was Slade. Which okay. I made a, a note of because of Slade Wilson. Okay, Slade, yeah. Yeah. Slade is the one who actually pulled the trigger on Jack. Uh, Fixer just gave the orders. I mean, I guess, like, this issue, maybe in 1964, Innocence, you could just assume that they're never going to defend someone who is guilty. But in my pessimistic world, I imagine defenders take on clients they know are guilty all the time. That's yeah. part of that's part of how our court system works, is they deserve a, a chance at an argument, too. Right. And and then it becomes the defense attorney's goal to like find some way to wiggle around or to get a, a reduced sentence or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the guy's guilt is off or a person's guilt is often not in question in the attorney's mind. It's a matter of trying to convince a court, okay, this isn't really as bad as it sounds. Right. So it's like Daredevil and Matt are working against each other in a way. Yeah, in a way they in a way they kind of are, you're right. Um so I thought it was a really solid first issue. Yep. Um, it's possibly one of the better issues of Daredevil for a while. Oh, no. 
<laughs> I don't think that his issues get into the doldrums that Iron Man and Thor do. I just think they're kind of kooky. But the personal drama keeps it interesting and, and other stuff keeps it interesting. Um, but if you're unaware out there in listener land, there is a podcast that goes into, into extensive detail on the life and times of Matt Murdock. And that is Dave's Daredevil podcast, um, hosted by J. David Weeder, although he lets me call him Dave. Um, he gave us a few notes that he had just, he had recently reread this issue. And so here are some thoughts. We can share our thoughts on his thoughts. First thought is Matt has no identity of his own. He is completely defined by Jack Murdoch first as a father and then as a cause. That's an excellent observation that I completely agree with. That's kind of like what we were just saying is he's just like this sheltered shut in dude until, Mm -hmm. until foggy comes along and like forces him to be human. Right. He's, he does everything his dad tells him and, doesn't really seem to have any other drive except to honor his mom's memory by doing everything his dad says and never having a personality of his own. Yeah. It's almost like how Jordan has so little personality in those early green lanterns. Um, but then daredevil figures out who he's going to be once he has a relationship with foggy and Karen. And they'll eventually use this whole like shut in business to make Matt a little bit of a nutso, which kind of works. Yeah, yeah, I think it does too. Um, Dave says, number two, the first issue is pure noir, which is kind of abandoned after this issue. But that's just like the tone and the feel. It's it's all it's all a crime story. It's all just like detective, not detective fiction, but noir fiction. Well, you definitely get the crime element, but I think he maybe smiles too much and has too much fun for it to be like classic, the world sucks crime noir. But mm-hmm. I mean, he's kind of flashy in this. He is kind of flashy. Uh, third and final point: the first issue is basically designed as a one-off. It is. I don't think. I don't think he's saying like as intended as a series, but just like the setup of the structure of the plot is like a one-off. It, it, it's complete by itself. Daredevil's mission is complete at the end of the story. This works as a novella, as a short story that doesn't need to continue on. So why is he back in costume in the second issue and and during office hours? You'll have to headcanon that when we get there. Yeah, I don't know, because I haven't read that issue yet. We'll come up with something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. This is a very solid beginning, middle, end origin story that you could, I guess, just walk away from forever. But then you'd not get more Daredevil stories. Yeah. It's weird just how like every single loose end is tied up. Well, they're not much for... I mean, just as of our what we're covering right now, they're finally starting to do two-parters here and there. And they're not very good at them. So they're not leaving a lot of plot dangles yet still that's not Mm -hmm. that's not the business they're in i think spider-man's going to show them that it works and it sells a lot of books when you make us wonder for three issues what betty's problem is and then they're going to start doing that for everybody well you know the point is often made that the first spider-man origin story works plenty and perfectly as just a a a twist of a an origin of of, of a short story i mean yeah and this is kind of in that same vein it works as a one-shot story and done yeah, except for the part where it's called Daredevil number one. They could have easily just <laughs> they could have easily just had this as like, you know, strange superhero tales number six hundred and fifty-eight. Right. And never revisited the character again. Six hundred and fifty-eight comics will never last that long. Oh, not the way they're doing it now. And there's one other um just kind of concept note. Um there's a podcast that I uh listen to and the 
host is a really good friend of mine. I'm sure a lot of you out there have heard of him. Michael Bailey does a show called Views from the Long Box. And years ago, he had a um, an episode where Thomas DJ, another podcaster, just kind of talked about the history of Daredevil from one from you know beginning to end, just mm-hmm. sort of hitting all the high marks in the in the um, the creators and such. And one of the things that DJ said in that show that has always kind of stuck with me is that Matt Murdock is so wrapped up in getting his personal life done, like getting school done, getting his law office done. And and like when he's Matt Murdock, he always has to be on that. Whenever he becomes daredevil, that's whenever he's able to actually kind of kick back, relax, have some fun and be a person. Yeah. Daredevil's like his escape from the oppressiveness of his father's upbringing. Right. Man, his Which, dad uh, is really I, I, bad. It's always, it's always kind of struck me. I'm sorry, say that again? His dad is horrible. I never really thought about that before. Yeah. Hmm. Didn't mean to be. No. Ended up being. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Bad parenting, dad. Wow. I, I've made more than a few missteps in my efforts to be a good dad that just didn't quite happen the way I meant them oh, to. Oh, well, we all have. We're all we're all going to screw up our kids, I guess. There's no getting around that. But Right. But that, yeah. So that's Daredevil number one. Yay. Um, our last new character for uh, the rest of this show, apparently. <laughs> Unless we make it really far. So we have another comic, and that is going to be Tales to Astonish 55. Yes. Now, I have this one. You do. And it is Giant Man on the trail of the human top. I know you were just waiting for him to come back. Oh, I know, because that, that original two-parter was so exciting. It was. It was so good. We just listened to the episode today where the second part came out. And it was like, oh my gosh, you could have just made five pages more and let that be the story. Let's do it again. Story by Happy Stanley. Art by heroic Dick Ayers. No more Donnie Heck. That's, and and the poorer for it, in my opinion. A, A bit, yep. Lettering by Honest Art Simic. So we open up with Giant Man in an exercise of masochism, playing <laughs> playing some films of himself being a total buffoon, trying to catch <sighs> the human top. Dude, how sad is it that I read this issue and didn't even think of that? Because it's just so normal now for us to be accepting these things. Well, it's just like this was the story about how like he was trying to be Giant Man and, and like couldn't. Yeah. Like fumbled all over himself. And he even mentions that I was so clumsy back in those days. But it's like, oh my gosh, if your fan club is meeting, don't show them the ones where you're an ass. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Just like, okay. Um, so they're talking about the top and um, that that's a good cue for the top to escape from jail. Of course. Nice tie in. Yeah. Yeah. He whirls around so quickly that he becomes invisible. Because that's a thing that happens. <laughs> and the policeman checks on his cell and is like, oh my gosh, where is he? I will open the door, walk into the cell, and see if he's there. He's not. Oh no. And while he's doing that, the top just like, you know, squizzes past him and gets out of, of jail. Um, and immediately decides to uh, rob a bank. He's like, I've got to get some money. So he goes and robs a bank. And while he's in the bank, he's swirling around. The wake of his twirling 
scatters all of those deposit slips and paper notes and all the other things that are in a bank. They're all they're always so nice, nicely, neatly stacked mm-hmm. in those little cubbies. So you can use them. No, not anymore. So Henry and Jan find out about this over the police report, and Jan shrinks down to wasp, and Henry shrinks, uh, sh- shrinks, grows up to giant, and jumps out of his skylight. He does this whole thing. We'll talk about the notes about getting off his uh, building using like a flagpole with a tension rope on it. Um, and Wasp was like, oh my gosh, that was so cool. And they start going down the sidewalk, but there are too many people. And Giant Man's like, crap, I, I can't walk. There are too many people. I know. I'll shrink down to ant size because I'm definitely not going to get stepped on. So they go to the bank, but there's still ant size. The paper's all over the floor. So they go back to normal size. Um, they go after the human top and they catch him. They, they fight. And the human top, first thing he does is takes Giant Man's belt which is genius. And then he takes one of Giant Man's growing pills, which is also great. So now the human top is giant and Giant Man can't change sizes. So Wasp shrinks down and is immediately captured because, oh my gosh, the Wasp can't catch a freaking break in this book anymore. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Never gets a chance to be awesome anymore. So um, Ant-Man or Giant Man is um, uses the wafer-thin cybernetics in his helmet to call the ants. The ants come and rescue him from the place where he's being held prisoner. Uh, they bring him one of his shrinking capsules from his belt because they can do that. And he shrinks down and gets out of the room. Um, he goes and gets his belt and grows back up to size and sets the wasp free and fights the human top. And the wasp goes and gets some termites and tells the termites to eat the floor and the human top falls through the floor, and they catch him. I wish that's what happened, because then at least the wasp did something. But she doesn't even what do it, that. It, he calls the termite. He calls the termites while he's being whatever. She says, "I hear him contacting the termites," and then he's like, "Oh, Jan is supervising those termites." <laughs> but all she did uh. was stand there. She didn't even get the termites. I'm not even sure she can talk to termites. And by the way, termites. Now we're doing termites, giant man. First, there's giants and ants and termites. You're just, you have no idea who you are anymore, Hank, and you're really starting to annoy me. Well, he says, he says, I knew I could count on the wasp. She saw to it that the termites weakened just the right area of the deserted tenement's roof, so it cave in under the top. So maybe she called the termites in and she gave them directions. Okay, I guess. I didn't know she talked to the bugs like he does, but maybe she does. Well, I didn't know that either of them could talk to termites. I thought it was just ants. Remember that Scarlet Beetle story? Mm-hmm. All the other freaking bugs attacked him, except yep. for the ants. Only yeah. the ants loved him. Yeah, he couldn't tell those other bugs to back off. Okay. Hey, well, maybe Headcanon, termites. he went back to the lab and figured out how to talk to them for next time. Yeah. Okay, yeah. sure, why not? But I still, yeah, Giant Man is really bugging lately. I don't know. I feel like this is the third or fourth story where it sets up what would seemingly be the wasp coming to the rescue. And then she doesn't. Yes. And I hate it. <laughs> like, cause this, he steals giant man's belt and takes a giant capsule, which by the way, just happened with, uh, 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 the porcupine, the porcupine, Oh, the porcupine, his second appearance. He took a, he tried to take a capsule and then he ended up shrinking member and dying. You're right. Seemingly out of existence. But anyway, so at least he gets that right. Giant or a uh, world whirlpool man, whatever whirlwind, gets huge and he spins around and he blows giant man off his feet. Cause now he's like a giant whirlwind and he's like, Oh no, I guess Jan needs to save me. And she's like, I have to remember giant man's training. And you turn the page 
And Giant Man's training involves being captured in a jar and doing nothing. I thought she was going to rescue. Yeah. They keep tricking me. Here's the thing. It's not Janet Van Dyne who is getting into binds that she can't get out of. It is writers and editors putting her in situations where she should be able to do better, but she doesn't. And they have her doing things. Um, she, as a character, has shown herself to be fully capable. She is not a beginning superhero. At this point... You know, the gap between Ant-Man going solo before Janet came on is like distant and in the past. This has been Henry and Jan as a team for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And she's never allowed to be awesome anymore. And she was awesome in the early days. Her last awesome was Cyclops, I think. The giant Cyclops robot. Yeah. Where she saved everybody and everything. She has her belt on. He puts her in a jar. Grow back up. Right. I don't know. Whatever. And like like the only thing keeping her in the jar is him holding his hand on it. Like as soon as he lets go of the jar, she can just push it off. Oh my gosh, it's such an easy thing to get out of, and they don't even let her get out of it. I was just reading some like Roger Stern, John Buscema era uh Avengers where she's the leader. Uh-huh. And like Cap's going around like, Oh, I gotta remember to not accidentally take take charge, which is my instinct because Jan's awesome. It's like, man, when does that start happening? Because we're not getting that. <laughs> Um, and there is actually one part where I feel like the writer is almost trying to cater to that, but they don't actually succeed in doing it. Page nine, um, you know, they're about to go do something and she says, I'll leave the brain work to you here of mine. I'm better in the moonlight and roses department. He says, I hate to sound like a stuffed shirt jam, but I wish you'd start taking yourself seriously. You're easily the brainiest, cleverest girl I've ever met as well as the most beautiful and gorgeous. And yet you try to sound like an empty headed flighty coquette. I know the real you, honey, and I like what I know. And I'm just like, so do the readers. This is where I thought, this is how they set me up. Because it sounded like, you know, that's what you should now do in this story, is have her be as awesome as he just described. But of course, they didn't. Oh, well, we're just going to complain Anyways, about the I same thing. I don't actually thing. have a... Right. Yeah, me I don't neither. have a whole lot to say about this. There's one um, uh, continuity note. He has built this whole contraption on how to get out of his building now. Uh-huh. Where like he jumps out of the skylight, grabs this loop that's hanging on the end of a flagpole, and he says it's on a tension cord, so it releases him slowly down to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jan has no clue that it exists. Well, she's all about flowers, she said, or something. Yeah, I guess. So why I guess we always see her over at his place in the comics. But if he had this whole thing installed without her ever knowing, maybe she doesn't actually spend all of her time there like we thought she does. Well, her dad had a nice house. Yeah. So maybe she lives there. she goes there. home sometimes. I feel like he's just trying to recreate the glory days of his Ant-Man rocket launcher. And he's not succeeding because it actually makes me miss the Ant-Man rocket launcher. <laughs> yeah. Which I didn't like to begin with, if I remember correctly. But yeah, I liked it more than you did. I thought it was cute, but you didn't it's, like it. It's way better than a giant jumping out of a window and like tethering down to the street. Right. That's not that exciting. What's the difference between that and just walking out the front door, giant man? You're just being weird. Yeah. He's being extra and dramatic. And I always feel like during scenes like that, my, my brain cues into the fact that he has so much mass that he's moving around that like – Hitting the ground with a lot of force is going to really seriously do damage to him. And um, yeah, I don't know. 
Also, the human top does really well at giant size. Yeah. And the whole point was that Henry Pym had to, like, get used to that. But Tom is like, whoa, I'm a giant. This is really cool. So, and this is the second time now they've stolen his power. So maybe he needs to come up with a new way to... This whole pill thing that he came up with, which he was just patting himself on the back about, is Mm -hmm. not working. Because other people are co-opting it. Because you can just take it. And they all see him taking these pills and changing size. So they know that's where it's coming from. Right, right. So they know exactly where to go to. Giant Man is like kind of the worst. I miss Ant-Man. Ant-Man was glorious and cool. And Giant Man is like Henry just being dumb and having a weird thing. Like, why does he have to run through the city giant? And then it doesn't work because he's going to kill people. So then he shrinks, like you said. Why not just be a normal person? I don't know. Whatever. Just be a normal person. Because being Ant, like we we had scenes in Tales to Astonish, like 36 or something, where he's going down a busy street as Ant-Man and like worried about getting stepped on. I don't like this business every issue where he hangs out with his fan club, too. Like, are you just looking for worship now? I'm like, like come on, Hank. What's going on here? This <laughs> is just weird. And he doesn't even – and his muddled outfit and his muddled theme, like those poor guys, their jackets are lame. All they say is Giant Man fan club on them. There's no logo or color scheme. For some reason, Steve Rogers is there, but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. it's like, I don't know. If that was a Batman fan club, you'd have a Bat. Superman fan club, you'd have Superman. If it was Ant-Man fan club, you'd have an Ant on there. There was actually some good use of size size changing during the fight towards the end of the story. He, you know, did his big and little stuff kind of dynamically. But um, the only other thing I have is that at the end of the story, the last panel of the last page mm-hmm. is the first mention of these two potentially getting married. Oh, yeah. Janet says some quip in her brain about, I'd, I'd rather see you writing our name on a wedding license or something. Maybe they should actually go out and act like boyfriend and girlfriend first. But Yeah. Yeah. So this book, like most issues, has a backup story, The Gypsy's Secret, which is another wonderful wasp telling a story. This is story plot by Stan Lee, script and art by L.D. Lieber, inking George Bell, and lettering uh, is kind of blurred on my copy. It looks like Sherigale, a oh, new wow. letterer that I'm used to. I can't so, read that either. Yeah, Sherigale. I did not look it up to see if it, if if that's uh, another name like a pseudonym or something. Um, yeah. So Henry and Jen are talking, and she makes a point, and he's like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Oh, you don't understand my point? Well, let me tell you a story that illustrates my point, which is something that never <laughs> happens in actual conversation." <laughs> yeah. So there's this gypsy named Gorko who has discovered alchemy. He can turn lead into gold. And he keeps this secret off for himself, just doing enough gold to, like, buy groceries in bulk, you know, periodically. Costco, yeah. And, yeah. So, he goes to a baron asking um, for, like, shelter for a while or something. The baron's like, no, you're a gypsy, so you're probably a thief, so you can't live here. He's like, I'll pay for my stay. I have some gold. He's like, oh, if you have gold, then you must be a thief, and I'm going to capture you and take your gold. He's like, no, no, I'm not a thief. I can make gold. I can turn lead into gold. He's like, oh, well, then you're definitely going to get captured and going to turn lead into gold for me. And um, so he captures the gypsy and he's like, okay, fine. I can make gold for you. But the formula is back in my in my cabin. So he takes the Baron to the cabin. Inside the cabin, uh, the wagon or whatever, the Baron uh, gets trapped in the cage. Gypsy takes off his mask. Turns out he's an alien. And he's taking the Baron off to something in space. 
because he was looking for uh, what was it? The most worthless something, or no? He was looking for once again a mortal, a mortal who will never be missed. Right. Oh my god. You know what? They had me here for five seconds on this one because it's like <laughs> it's like, hey, this isn't a stupid future story, and hey, I kind of like this gypsy. He's figured out how to make gold, but he's not being a jerk about it. Yeah. You know. And then I was like, okay, what's go? Where's this going? I'm sort of interested. And then he's an alien. And then he was looking for the one human, just like the last five stories we've read. Right. Oy. Whatever. Forget this book. When is it over? Okay. Oh, no. Hulk is coming soon, right? Hulk is coming soon. But then again, Hulk 1 through 6 were pretty awful, too. So we'll see how that goes. Let's talk okay. about a good book and end the show that way. Spider-Man? <gasps> Spider-Man. He was always mostly good. In fact, I can't think of a bad Spider-Man we've done. The closest was... I think the Doctor Doom thing wasn't so great, but it wasn't like it was bad. And the Living Brain wasn't so great, but had had the, had the flash fight in it, which was good. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, this one is not either of those. It's Amazing Spider-Man 12, and it's Unmasked by Doctor Octopus. It came out on February 11th. So two more days from February 11th, and all have been almost born in nine or ten, 11 years. Anyway... We're coming up on your negative 11th birthday? Yeah. So this issue is what came out around my negative 11th birthday. Oh, I have to look up the uh, the famous thingies. Okay. Written in the white heat of inspiration. Wow. By Stan Lee. Drawn in a wild frenzy of enthusiasm by Steve Ditko. Letters in a comfortable room <laughs> by Art Simic. I like that. I like that he slams himself all the time. That's really funny. Okay. So if we recall, this kind of is a continuation, kind of is, kind of isn't. I mean, it is. But uh, so last issue, Doc Ock escaped uh, and they fought in Philadelphia where Betty and her brother were being blackmailed. And so anyway, it starts there kind of with the Daily Bugle uh, releasing a newspaper that slams Spider-Man. Spider-Man goes to confront J. Jonah Jameson, because he's had it with the whole slamming, even though that's how he makes his money. But instead of confronting him, he then he he notes that the secretary that's filling in for Betty is screaming and quitting. So he decides to just eavesdrop instead. And lo and behold, Betty comes back asking for her job back just at the right moment. And J. Jonah Jameson, of course, is happy to have her because the secretary just quit. So that makes Spider-Man excited. He turns to Peter Parker, goes over to say hi. J. Jonah Jameson kicks him out. Uh, meanwhile, the Dr. Octopus, the Dr. Octopus, I forgot who we were talking about. Dr. Octopus has been rampaging around, I guess, the entire country. Um, Robin Banks here, helicopters there, trucks here, all that. And he's kind of like, man, what does a fella have to do to get Spider-Man's attention? Because he really wants to like have that third round with Spider-Man and once and for all just beat him. But unfortunately, as we cut back to Peter Parker... The reason Spider-Man hasn't gone after Dr. Octopus is A, he's a kid and he has to go to school. B, he's a kid and his Aunt May would not allow him to just gallivant around the country. Uh, C, he's a kid and he has no money to gallivant around the country. And D, he's coming down with a cold. Oh, no. So now he's back at school and Flash, who's now Spider-Man's number one fan after that robot brain episode we just made fun of or issue we just made fun of i think um he doesn't like the newspaper he thinks that spider-man of course is cool um of course he makes fun of of uh, peter as they walk by 
And uh, what happens? Oh, yeah. Dr. Octopus calls – or no, he calls and finds out that Betty is working at the planet – or the planet. Whoops. At the bugle again. And as Peter goes to visit him, he shows up because he's going to kidnap Betty because he noted that Spider-Man really was into protecting Betty. So he's hoping that this will draw out Spider-Man, which, of course, it doesn't because Peter's there. So he has to pretend he's a weakling and he lets Betty uh, get kidnapped. And Dr. Ock's like, tell Spider or put in the paper that I'll meet Spider-Man at uh, such and such carnival or whatever um, and come alone and we'll fight. So Spider-Man, of course, goes over there. But just as he's going over there, that flu that he was feeling earlier is really starting to kick in. And he's feeling like lightheaded, like he can't even stand up. And actually, his spider powers are starting to fail him even. Because I guess when you get a cold, all of his stuff starts to fail. But he goes to fight Doc Ock anyway. And he actually gets in some good punches, except for the fact that he's weak now. So Dr. Octopus is like, you're not even the real Spider-Man. The real Spider-Man would have punched my head off. Who are you? And he unmasks Peter, because Peter's like near unconscious at this point. And Betty and J. Jonah Jameson, who ended up showing up, and a police officer that he dragged with him, all see that Spider-Man is really Peter Parker. Dun, dun, dun. Except nobody believes that it's really Spider-Man, because since he's so weak, uh, they all think that Peter Parker just showed up dressed as Spider-Man to rescue Betty because he loves her. Uh, Peter goes home. Aunt May gets a doctor. The guy's like, yeah, he'll be fine in the morning. It's one of those 24-hour knock-you-on-your-butt flus the guy's right because after a few nightmares yeah the next morning he's doing backflips again um he goes back to the school and now um uh, what's her name Liv or liz 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 is totally into peter parker because she read in the newspaper that peter dressed up as spider-man and risked his life to try and save betty flash thinks he's lame and stupid and liz like totally turns on him says we're not boyfriend and girlfriend anymore and how dare you because peter's the bravest guy I've ever met. She's like, what that dweeb? Anyway, um, Dr. Octopus goes around again. He like frees a bunch of zoo animals and stuff, but Spider-Man's feeling okay now. So he easily like subdues the lion and the tigers and the bears and the apes. Oh my. Uh, Oh, then they like, he confronts Dr. Octopus and they fight on like a big, Fact in a at a factory with one of those big chimney smokestack things. Yeah. Um, um, and at one point, Doctor Octopus like knocks him down into an air shaft, and he thinks he's got him, but Spider Man like like just twips and lets the web stretch, and then kind of catapults himself back up and smacks right into uh, Doctor Octopus Vulture style. He learned that from the Vulture, um, and knocks him out. Oh, and then they go end up in the in a. Uh, in like an art statue studio museum thing. And Doc Ock accidentally ignites it on fire. And the whole place is burning down and both of them are stuck, but doc, like a big statue falls on Dr. Octopus and Spider-Man can't get to him, but he manages to get out, you know, using like his web shield to get away from the fire. Um, he escapes and the fire trucks show up and they get Dr. Octopus. So he's alive and well, but he's finally captured. And then Liz goes to Peter and it's like, I never realized how amazing you are. Will you please date me? And he's like, nope, I'm going to go date Betty. And then he goes home and he gets a date with Betty. And he's all happy because Jameson paid him a lot of money for the pictures he took. And it ends on a happy note. The Which end. Is like bizarre for this book. Yeah. It's like the second time, maybe. 
So this is a really, really fun issue. This is one of the most iconic issues of early Spider-Man, in my opinion. Certainly that one scene where he's unmasked is definitely something we've seen before or, you know, gets referred to often. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, um, you know, the structure here is kind of like the Fantastic Four 16 and 17. Uh, we have two back to back Doom stories that aren't really connected to anything except for the fact that Doom got away at the end of one and he's there at the end of the next, at the beginning of the next one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, lots of good stuff here. Man, I feel like Spider Man is the hardest book we have to summarize because so much stuff happens. Yeah. Like, but it's got all the drama of like his life. I mean, because I can skip over, you know, uh, Jane Foster and Donald Blake conversations. Cause they don't mean anything mm-hmm. most of the time, but like every little nuance thing here, you got to cover because now we know that Liz loves what's his name and, or Liz loves Peter and hates flash and Betty's back. And it's like, man, there's no skim in this. Uh, but let, let's talk about some of that. Cause yeah. you know, they have the, the conversation with, um, you know, between Peter and the other kids about Spider-Man and spiders and how the paper is trying to make spiders look bad. So Spider-Man looks bad. Uh-huh. And Peter, I guess Peter's been reading Superboy lately and he thinks that, you know, being Clark Kent is what he's supposed to do. So he pulls on the, oh my gosh, spiders are icky. I don't like them. <laughs> and everyone is like, really, Peter? Because <sighs> he somehow thinks that if he was just like, I don't care about spiders, that they put two and two together and realize he was Spider-Man. If they think I like spiders, they'll think I'm Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, that was a little weak, but... Uh, yeah. You know, thinking on the fly, I guess. It doesn't help his rep, though, at all. Now he's a guy who's scared of spiders. No, no, it does not help him at all. But he really does like Betty now. They are definitely a thing. He goes to her place of employment twice in one day and gets kicked out both times. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested in them actually dating now that this whole weight of blackmail is over. Well, it's kind of interesting that you say that. (laughs) Because it's not going to (laughs) happen. Well, this is... This is kind of the height of their relationship. Oh, and nothing's happened yet. Well, I mean, you know, they've they've gotten really close and they've had lots of moments. They've worked through lots of difficulties. But um, some of the less appealing aspects of Betty Brandt's personality are going to start coming out right around issue 14. I can think of some things. I can't think of anything in issue 13, but I can think of some things in issue 14. And then it goes from there. Um, the fact that Liz Allen also takes a shine to Peter right now is not going to help matters any. I was just thinking it, you know, what am I looking for to establish a relationship? Cause so far we've had no relationships in any of these books really. And I'm suddenly realizing, well, it's 1964. They're not going to show me anything that makes concrete relationships. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, Peter and Betty have a relationship right now. But they've never been to, like, the sock hop and they don't make out. Uh, You know what I mean? (laughs) Not that we've seen. Right. But I feel like they're dating. I even feel like he's probably gone on a few dates with Liz or at least they've, like, had, you know, reasonable conversations about it because he's called her for dates pretty easily. Like, it's something that he's going to do. Um, But he and Betty, in my mind, they've gone out, they've had drinks, they've talked, they've probably kissed and made out you know whatever they're a thing yeah they're just not going to show it because this is a kid's book i guess right and you're here for the superheroes right you don't want all that mushy stuff well they were pretty mushy last issue when they reunited in philadelphia i don't whatever betty was after her secret lover i mean brother i don't remember if they said the l word but they might as well have yeah the narration has used the l word but they have not used it with each other okay um okay he goes to coney island I've been to Coney Island. Nice. 
And I did not think about this story when I was there because we were trying to find Harley Quinn's house. <laughs> okay. Um, in the uh, Harley Quinn comic series oh. that was done by uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor, I think. Uh-huh. She lives in Har- Coney Island and she lives in an actual building that's actually in Coney Island. Well, isn't like the Joker inspired by the Coney Island like clown face weird guy too also so that's a little nudge nudge wink wink there oh i i never heard that i know but what coney island ride you're talking about i had not ever heard that joker actually uh, owed its existence to that partly that and partly this actor um that i can't remember the name of you should listen to batman legends it's pretty good man we cover a lot of stuff oh the one that you and michael did <laughs> yeah just shameless, uh, shameless plug everything- I listened to every episode of that, but it was like 15 years ago. That's what I was going to say. Shameless plug of a show that no longer exists. <laughs> uh, Legends of the Batman. <laughs> BatmanLegends.com. Yep. Uh, okay. I can very much relate to the rapid onset sickness that Peter has in this. Like, uh-huh. He wakes up in the morning and feels a little bit you know, peckish, but by the afternoon, he's like, oh my God, I'm dying. Um, the first oh, yeah. time I got strep, uh-huh. I, was, I was going in a... Uh, we were going to go see my aunt uh, who lives in Houston and it was going to be a six hour drive. We got in the car. I was feeling fine. We got to South Dallas about an hour, hour and a half into the trip and I'm starting to feel bad. And by the time we get back home, I can barely walk. Like I'm shaking and can barely get myself from the car to bed. It just like hits that quickly. Oh yeah. I like that it affects his powers. I've never heard of that idea before on any other superhero. We don't really hear about superheroes getting sick very often. Right. But it kind of makes um, sense. Like, cause like you said, you can't walk. Normally you can walk. So why not? Why wouldn't it affect your wall sticky powers? Cause they're tired too, you know, or something. That's I don't a know. Really good thought. Like, yeah, if I'm weak and, and shaky legged and can't walk, then why wouldn't his clingy powers? Yeah. Like when you're walking, you have gravity on your side, right? True. But when you're clinging to the walls. Yeah. There's there's something helping you do that. That's a really that's a really good connection. Um, we have other occasions in these early years of Spider-Man to link his powers to psychosomatic concepts. Mm. Like if he's not if he's not with it, sometimes his powers kind of kick out on him, and it's it's a little bit weird. Like all of Spider-Man too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that we definitely see that in the first Spider-Man annual, which we have not yet covered, which I'm very much looking forward to. We're in February 1964, and it's like three months away, which is probably like 10 or 15 episodes away. Well, he's also lost his power when he had a blood transfusion. So now this is twice now. Yep, yep. Um, okay, his unmasking is such an iconic moment. Mm-hmm. Like, this is so great. And it... It doesn't completely go away. Like this gets mentioned occasionally as we go forward. But I feel like if it were real life, like we actually knew Peter, we would we would not let him live this down. Well, it's, I guess you could look at it two ways. Either he's really dumb or really brave. Hmm. Um. I guess. Maybe like you know. I guess. I guess. I guess you could just go dress as Spider Man or something, right? I mean. Yeah. So you either react like Liz or you react. You react like Flash, I suppose. Uh, or just tease about him good naturedly for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, that's Flash, kind of. Oh yeah, that is Flash. But also his friends kind of shift before too much longer. So I guess there's no one around who really relates to this. Remember, Flash warned him and hoped that he didn't die last issue or something or two issues ago. That was a good moment. Yeah. So I, I'm hoping to see more of those, but we sure didn't see that in this issue. 
No, that was issue 10. Because um, he was trying to make up with Peter and, and feel bad for him after getting punched in the face. Well, he told him, like, don't go after that guy on Betty's behalf because you could get hurt, right? Or something like that. Right. Yeah. When, they, when the enforcers were cruising for Betty and he was like, I'm going to take down the enforcers. I know who the big man is. Yeah. Peter, Peter, shut up. They they will kill you. Yeah. Um. I okay. This go ahead. this dream is so like nothing happens with this dream, but it was just interesting that they decided to throw that in there. Yeah, it's a good moment. It's like you know, just good storytelling. Yeah, he has this dream. I don't even know if I said it in the summary. He has a dream about how like he shouldn't have gone there as Spider Man because he was feeling so weak, so he was being a dummy. And then that's it. But- and it helps to kind of expound the plot because it's like you know that viruses are the one thing even your spider strength can't resist. So we get that little explanation of the plot, but I feel like it's handled very uh, organically. So I don't know if it's just me, but I've always liked when Peter Parker is bounding around. Not Spider-Man. Oh, just as Peter? Yeah. I think it's cool. So that panel on page nine, the last panel where he's like flipping upside down, yippee, I feel better again mm-hmm. in his pajamas. I like that stuff. I like the way he moves around in his room when no one's looking. And then he goes downstairs and totally lies oh, yeah. to his Aunt May. Yeah, superheroes she, lie. Yeah, and she learns from this because there is going to be a similar situation not too far down the road, uh, history-wise, maybe a ways down for us, though, where um, she once again catches him with a Spider-Man costume and she won't let him have it back. So she she learns from this situation that maybe he can't take care of those suits himself. Yeah. Do you think at this point she knows he's Spider-Man? Does she ever know? I thought she's supposed to know. Or am I making that up? Um, okay. She finds out before the mind wipe. And then after the mind wipe, she doesn't know. But that was with the JMS run? Yeah, JMS run. She actually yeah. she does not learn in Civil War. She already knows by Civil War. But um, yeah, because whenever he becomes an Avenger, May and Mary Jane get housing at Avengers Tower. Yeah, because she walked in on him all beat up and bloody in his bed or something. Exactly. Okay, so that's a long ways away. Yeah, okay. that, is, that is a long ways away. I was like, it was kind of like that Perry White thing. You ever, every once in a while, you kind of suspect that she knows something. Mm-hmm. Like even Spider Man Two. Remember, like he didn't want to fight, and she's all like, "Even though I hate that Spider Man, he showed a lot of bravery. We could really use some of that bravery right now." And he's like, "Oh, are you talking to me as Peter or Spider Man?" Anyway. So we do have the beginning of the Liz Allen crush here. I've talked about the Liz Allen crush before to see if maybe it was starting to develop. I had forgotten how defined the beginning of her crush on him was. Yeah, she really spun on this one. Um, Did she break up with Flash at this moment or was he already her ex-boyfriend? Um, she, this is her, her first word of negativity to Flash. But she says, and as for you, my dear ex-boyfriend. I think that was the breakup right there because yeah. she likes Peter and now he's being a, a jerk to Peter. And she, now that, <laughs> now that she values Peter as a romantic or sexual interest, all of a sudden she values his worth as a human being. Now we have talked about how like there was one issue where he had to cancel a date with her and she got mad at him. Mm-hmm. But that means that he had a date with her. Yeah. So, so I feel like they've maybe occasionally gone on dates or at least talked about going on dates, but, but she was always more attached to Flash. Yeah, Flash's bad influence over how to treat Peter Parker, I guess. I've always liked the 12 monkeys moment on page 11 where the animals are just like leaving the zoo. <laughs> yeah, and anytime a superhero with super strength can fight lions or bears and stuff, that's kind of fun too. Yeah, and uh, my headcanon is that Flash Thompson is in Johnny Storm's bowling group. 
Liz, wait, I thought we were going bowling this afternoon. Liz. I thought you said we, I thought you said bullying group. Like, that too. like there's a group sure they, they get together and figure out how to bully people. Yeah. Let's I hit, like let's, that idea let's too. hate Spider-Man together. Flash Thompson is in a bullying club. Yeah. Okay, there's a lot of really, really good art through the course of the animals. Did you read on page 14? Also the Dr. Octopus stuff with him on all the arms and everything. But on page 14, there's a sign that he knocks down. Did you read the sign? I did read it, and then I don't think I looked it up to see what that meant. It is L-E-E-D-I-T. Oh, it means nothing. It means Lee Ditko, huh? Right. Lee Dit Incorporated. Okay. I, didn't, I want to live in a world where they're friends and they have a comics company together. I didn't catch that. I thought maybe it was a sign from a real place, but okay. That makes more sense. Um, These chip, the smoke the smokestacks remind me mm-hmm. of the scene as it takes place versus Dr. Octopus in the Marvel tryout handbook. I don't know if you ever have read that or seen that. I've not. See, for those of us who wanted to be comic book artists, that was like our Holy Grail book. They released this book. That had like, you have to finish the story. You either have to be a penciler or an inker or a colorist or a letterer. And it was a Spider-Man, complete Spider-Man story that just kept getting less and less finished as it went along. Um, and yeah, Dr. Octopus and and Spider-Man fight in some in some uh, manufacturing plant that's like yellow with these smokestacks. Okay. Well, I've always kind of uh, liked it because the the visual physics of the um, him pulling the webs out and then letting them go slack. Uh-huh. My, my brain wrapped around that and thought about it a lot. So Ditko did a whole lot that just like teased the the spatial stuff with my brain. Doc Ock is like probably his most dangerous foe as of right now, I would think. They get into some good Doc- fights. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, I mean, I imagine only like maybe the goblin's going to outdo him at some point. But yeah. Just trying to look and see if there's anything else I have about. I like the the visuals of the the giant sculptures and the fire that happens at the end. That's a pretty good scene. Now there's this business in in page 17 where he falls down the air shaft and he webs and he stretches and then he springs back up, right? Mm-hmm. Which harkens to the movies where he seems to be where they're all very his webs are very springy, right? But. I always thought, okay, well, that's a movie thing. And in the comics, they don't spring because that's why What's-Her-Face dies. Um, wow, Gwen Stacy. That took way too long to pull out of my brain right now. You're right. If, like if, if Gwen Stacy is going to have recoil on her neck, they can't have any give to them. Right. So I always thought that it's a good thing like in the movies that they bounce and stuff. But apparently they do in the comics too sometimes, just not when he's saving women from falling. You know, we could, we could headcanon this. That like he plays with his formula ah. and occasionally makes it more or less stretchy because he goes through like like whims of what he likes when he's swinging. He does play with his formula a lot. So, yeah, that could work. Um, okay, so we have these sculptures and the fire and then Octavius gets arrested. And I'm trying to think of why he's letting that happen. He's un- like he's hurt, maybe. Maybe, but he's conscious and he's walking and he has his arms. He yeah. could swat those cops away and just go off in octopus another day. Yeah, the first panel you see him, he's all hunched over. So you think maybe he's unconscious and they're carrying him or something. But by mm-hmm. that second one, he definitely looks like he's just walking on his own power. I don't know. Maybe he's depressed because he got defeated again. <laughs> although, although, once again, he's not really defeated by Spider-Man per se. He's defeated by his own 
fire and a statue falling on his face. Although I do think that Spider-Man is getting pretty good at fighting Dr. Octopus. He's getting he like, better. He knows how to dodge past those arms. Well, if he wasn't sick. Get in close and fight him physically. If he wasn't sick in that first round, he had him. He cold cocked him. Like, mm-hmm. It just didn't do anything because mm-hmm. he was so weak. So that would have knocked him out right there. Yeah, good issue. Third, This is our third. So only like Dr. Doom. Oh, I guess freaking the top, technically. Even though it feels more like two appearances. But <laughs> Dr. Doom and the top are the only ones who have done as much as Dr. Octopus now. Right? Yeah. Well, no Namor. Namor's been around a bit. Oh, true. I always forget about him. He's not really much of a bad guy. He's our hero. But anyway, yeah, he's a bad guy right now. All right. Um, Well, I think that that wraps up Amazing Spider-Man 12, which means that we're at the end of another another episode. Yeah. Not another month, but another episode. Yeah. Um, I did not have a chance for this episode to put any uh, lists of thank yous together, so... Uh, Mike, if you don't mind telling where they can find us, then we'll wrap up. Well, you know, we're on episode 48. We're getting pretty big in our britches. We don't have to keep thanking the little people anymore, do we? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Uh, you can find us at makearsmarvel.com. It'll have all the links to all the RSS feed and the uh, you know iTunes and the Android and all that stuff. And, of course, that's where all our episodes are posted, which you can play right there on the website. Also, right there on the website, you can write to us with the contact form, or you could just manually email us podcast at makearsmarvel.com and lastly speaking of social media that we normally think you can find the links to our facebook twitter and google plus all right you know i I love dr octopus issues and i think that he and spider-man have a really great rivalry so until octopus decides that he should be spider-man make ours marvel marvel